Well, good morning, everyone. So we'll come to that passage in Galatians very shortly. Um, You might like to have it open in front of you. But before we do, a story, because I like stories. Uh, Eddie was a young man of 25 when his mother passed away, and he was left to look after his father. Now, his father was a very competent guy, but the one thing uh, he'd never learnt to do was to cook. Eddie's mother had done all the cooking in the home, and Eddie had no reason to fault it. Um, And one of the things that he'd picked up over the years was that she was a very superstitious person, and she applied this to her cooking. So certain foods were not allowed in the house. Certain meals were not allowed on certain days. There was a lucky knife for meat. Garlic was an ever-present ingredient to ward off evil. If she spilt salt, she'd throw some over her left shoulder. And all of this stuff, not really knowing any better, when she passed away, Eddie adopted her beliefs and ways because that's all he ever knew um, as he took on the role of cooking for himself and his father. And then one day, Eddie met a young lady called Nicole. And Nicole was everything his mother wasn't when it came to cooking. She was at ease with trying new dishes and putting things together, combinations of foods and ingredients that Eddie's mother wouldn't have entertained in the slightest. Things like marmite on toast with marmalade on top. I've heard it's great, by the way. (laughs) Haven't tried it yet. (laughs) There appeared to be no rules in Nicole's book of cooking, except one, to make something that was going to be nourishing and something that was going to be delicious. And so Eddie came to see cooking in a whole new light. And free from his mother's superstitions, he started to experiment and his dad seemed happy with the results, and Eddie experienced a surge of pleasure from his time in the kitchen. Now, a little while later, Nicole was offered the chance to work abroad for a year, and she took the opportunity. And while she was away, Eddie met Ryan and Charlotte. They became friends, and Ryan and Charlotte invited Eddie over for a meal, which he enjoyed very much. And he asked them about the recipe. And Ryan and Charlotte were devoted followers of Mary Berry. (laughs) She was, they said, the finest cook in the world. And they followed her recipes to the letter. Because, they argued, why would you deviate from perfection? And didn't Eddie want to give his father the very best? Now, I'm not making a point about cooking this morning. And uh, if Ryan and Charlotte are here, I do not judge you. Mary Berry is a lovely lady. Um, but But I am making a point about something else. Or rather, Paul is making a point in this letter to the Galatians. And his point, as Ian has said already this morning, can be summarised in three words. Don't go back. Just a bit premature there. Don't go back. Just like a jazz musician going back to a strict adherence to sheet music, 
or maybe like um, a cook going back to recipes after they've learned just to kind of, you know, freestyle a bit. Paul wants to say to the Galatians that they're at risk of losing all of the progress that they've made and going back. But going back to what is the question? And this is what we're going to be unpacking in Galatians 4, 8 to 20. So, as I say, do follow it in your church Bibles. It's page 1170. Um, I encourage you to turn to that now. And the first thing that Paul says to the Galatians is don't go back to slavery. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. So the Galatians had abandoned their earlier pagan beliefs and practices. Previously, they had lived to please themselves and had followed all sorts of superstitious mumbo-jumbo. They would have believed in family gods and ancestral worship, special charms and potions and spells, magicians and quack doctors. We know that from histories of the time, and we get some insights into it also from the book of Acts. So, for example, in chapter 14, we have uh, Paul and Barnabas come, and they preach to a place called Lystra, and a man is healed, and the people of Lystra believe that the gods have come down in human form, in the forms of Barnabas and Paul. Or in Acts chapter 19, we have a a huge bonfire recorded as the people of Ephesus, as they come to faith, bring their magic scrolls and throw them into the fire. So we get little glimpses of what it was like to, to follow pagan superstitions in Paul's day. But they had come to faith. And their lives before they had come to Christ had illustrated that they were in slavery to, using Paul's phrase, those who by nature are not gods. And Paul is probably referring to the spiritual forces that lay behind some of these beliefs and practices. Now to us and our 21st century materialistic ears, it can sound rather unusual. But Paul says quite a lot about this in other places like Ephesians, for example. He says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So there's a spiritual reality, not a reality that we can perceive with our natural senses, but there's a spiritual reality behind much of the evil that we see in our world. And these forces, Paul says, to which the Galatians were in slavery are actually, the words he uses are weak and miserable because they have no power to save us. So he says, don't go back to slavery. Don't go back to to being enslaved by something. Now they're not at risk of going back to 
paganism and being enslaved by paganism, but they are at risk of going back to a way of life that requires certain practices to be followed to please the gods or God. Jews from Jerusalem have told the Galatians that they, that they need to uh, add all sorts of Jewish practices to the Christian faith that Paul has preached to them. Paul says, you're observing special days and months and seasons and years. So they're at risk of swapping the pagan practices which they'd left behind and swapping them for some new Jewish practices to appease God. They're now looking to things like keeping the Sabbath day and keeping the new moon festivals and attending the Jewish seasonal festivals like Passover, Pentecost and Tabernacles to make themselves acceptable to God. And Paul says, don't go back that way. That is the way back to slavery. Don't go back. Because they now know God, or rather, as he corrects himself, they are known by God. Now, they'd known about God before. Everyone knows about God. We know about God through our consciences, which tell us that there is a a sense of right and wrong. We know about God through creation, Paul says in the book of Romans that all of us are without excuse. All of us have those two testimonies to a divine reality, conscience and creation. All of us know about God, but the Galatians had come to know God personally. And Paul says, or more to the point, Paul says, they are now known by God. Why does Paul correct himself? Why does he adjust what he's just said? Why does he say elsewhere, whoever loves God is known by God, or we love because he first loved us? Why is he keen to just make that little adjustment to something he's just said? Well, it's entirely consistent with what he's been saying over the course of this letter, that we cannot make ourselves acceptable to God through our own efforts. It can only ever be through God's initiative. You see, if my love for God is the basis of my security, then I'm on a very shaky platform because my feelings go up and down. If my love for God is the basis of my security, then if I'm feeling joyful, then that's great. But what if I'm not feeling so good? What's that like? But the Bible's testimony is that God's love is the basis of my security. So whether my feelings are up in the clouds in rapture or whether they are down in the valley of despair, irrespective of my feelings, God's love for me is constant. That is the only firm foundation for faith. In the story we began with, Eddie first cooked the way he cooked because that's what his mother cooked, because that's all he knew and because he thought that's what his father wanted. And later, he cooked the way Ryan and Charlotte told him to cook because he was told that that was the best way to cook. But his father loves him. His father doesn't mind what Eddie cooks or how he cooks, but he does mind that Eddie feels he has to cook in a certain way to gain his father's love. 
He doesn't need to do that. His father loves him. His father accepts him. He can cook with whatever freedom he likes because he's already loved and his father will be grateful for whatever he serves. So don't go back to slavery, Paul says in those first verses in Galatians. And then secondly, don't go back to being strangers. Verse 12. I plead with you, brothers and sisters, become like me, for I became like you. You did me no wrong. As you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. And even though my illness was a trial to you, you didn't treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. Where then is your blessing of me now? I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? So Paul is reminding the Galatians of the first time they met each other. And it's not clear from the grammar of the Greek original whether Paul's illness was the cause of his preaching or of the accompanying circumstances. Circumstance. Nor do we know exactly what Paul's illness was. You might be thinking, well, oh, verse 15, there was, he had some kind of problem with his eyes. But really that was just a, a way of saying, you would have done anything for me. So we don't know what it was that Paul was suffering from. But what we can say with confidence is that his illness had something repulsive about it. He says, you didn't treat me with contempt or scorn. And that second word literally means to spit out, to spit at. And you spat at someone in New Testament times if there was something repulsive about them or if you thought they were evil. Paul says, that's not how you treated me. You didn't, you know, whatever my condition was, it was repulsive, but you didn't, you didn't treat me with the kind of scorn that someone else might associate with, with my condition. Instead, you welcomed me. We'll come back to how the Galatians treated Paul in a moment, but I just wanted to take a little diversion from the passage, if I may. I think it's a valid one. To think about how Paul thought about himself at this point in his ministry. Because he didn't hide in a corner out of shame for his condition. He didn't wait until he was better before he shared the good news with the Galatians. Rather, he took the view that if after prayer, the kind of prayer he describes in 2 Corinthians 12, if after prayer God was not going to remove this condition from him, then he would serve God anyway because God, will be, God would be faithful. I recently read the story of someone called Lizzie Johnson who at 13 years of age injured her back in an accident and she was to spend the rest of her life 27 more years flat on her back. Her only view of the world was from a mirror mounted on her head. But she still wanted to do something for God. And so when she heard about um, in those days that you could free an African slave for $40, she made a quilt and tried to sell it for $40. No takers. So she went, she tried something else. She turned to making bookmarks, Christian bookmarks. 
and raised $1,000 a year for each of the 27 years remaining in her life, giving every penny to good causes. And one day a bishop from India was traveling through Illinois and she gave the previously unsold quilt to him. And this bishop went around with a quilt, um, speaking around the country and telling in part Lizzie Johnson's story and asked if people would contribute to the mission cause. And apparently he put, his, put the quilt that he'd bought um, at the front and people would come and put money into the quilt. So in that way, he raised $100,000 for missions. One day after Lizzie Johnson had died, her sister Alice heard that a man named Takuo Matsumoto was coming to Illinois. He'd been principal of a school in Hiroshima during the bombing. And Alice remembered that her sister had given money to support a man in Japan named Takuo Matsumoto. And she wondered if it was the same person. Now, she had every intention of going to hear him speak, but she got sick that day and had to stay home. But later on that night, someone told Mr. Matsumoto about her. And he said, you mean she's Lizzie Johnson's sister? All that I am, I owe to Lizzie Johnson. It seems to me that Lizzie Johnson is just one person in a long line of faithful followers of Christ, including Paul, who've not considered their limitations or their illnesses as a barrier to serving him. And it just felt appropriate to take a little diversion from the immediate meaning of Galatians, just to reflect on that this morning because sometimes we feel we can disqualify ourselves from service. We maybe feel that we're carrying something. It might be a physical illness or condition that prevents us from serving Christ. It may be some family circumstance. We think, well, I can't, I can't do much at the moment. Or it may be something else. But what this long line of, of people who testify says to me is that there is no limitation to what God can do. There's no restriction on God moving through us. So whatever, whatever it is that we think is holding us back, we can still serve God. And if we do it wholeheartedly and sincerely, he will bless what we offer to him. That's what Paul did. He had this condition, we don't know what it was, but he continued to preach the good news. And we know that churches in the area of Galatia sprang up as a result of his ministry. The Galatians welcomed Paul, Paul writes, as if he was an angel for God or from God or even Christ himself. But now all of that was at risk. He says, don't go back to being strangers or even worse, to becoming enemies just because you've spoken the truth to them. A true friend speaks the truth, painful though that may be. But sometimes the truth isn't welcomed and what was meant to restore has the opposite consequence. Nathan confronted David with the truth in 2 Samuel 12 and David repented. But Elijah confronted Ahab with the truth 
in 1 Kings 21, and Ahab called him his enemy. A minister of the gospel, and we are all ministers of the gospel, is not there to say nice things. We must all learn this difficult skill of telling the truth, telling it compassionately, and then leaving the outcomes to God. Now, some of us are better at telling the truth bit. Some of us are better at the compassion bit. All of us, I think, struggle with the leaving it to God bit. But Paul had learnt all of those things. He'd learnt how to speak the truth with love, and he'd learnt how to leave the consequences to God. And that's what we need to too. His love is plain, and he becomes quite pastoral in these verses. You know, verse 12, I plead with you, brothers and sisters, and verse 19, my dear children. His love is evident in these verses, as is his plain speaking. We saw that particularly in chapter one, but throughout Galatians, he speaks very plainly. He's found this combination of truth and love that we all need to find. Timothy Keller wrote, if you love a person so selfishly that you cannot risk their anger, you won't ever tell them the truth they need to hear. If on the other hand, you, need, you tell a person the truth they need, but with harshness and not with the agony of a lover, they won't listen. Paul had told them the truth with love. But as a result, they were now at risk of becoming strangers because they didn't like what he was sharing with them. And he says, don't go back to slavery. Don't go back to being strangers. Don't cut me off just because I'm telling you the truth. And then thirdly and finally, don't go back to immaturity. Those people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may have zeal for them. And it's fine to be zealous, provided the purpose is good and to be so always, not just when I'm with you. My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, how I wish I could be with you now and change my tone because I am perplexed about you. So in our story at the start, Ryan and Charlotte are very zealous. They're very zealous for Mary Berry. But they haven't really got Eddie's interests at heart or the interests of Eddie's father. They just want to see Eddie. They just want Eddie to see the world as they see it. They want Eddie to join the Mary Berry Club. But if Nicole was on the phone to Eddie, she'd be saying that following just one person's recipe and ignoring what everyone else had to say about, had to say about cookery is really a very immature way of thinking. There's nothing wrong with Mary Berry, but to follow her approach alone, excluding everyone else, is very constricting. And Paul wants the Galatians to grow up. He wants them to grow up into maturity in Christ. I'm again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. And as we look across the New Testament letters, we see that this heart for maturity comes out again and again. This is what Paul wants more than anything else for those who follow Christ. To the Colossians, he wrote, Jesus is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. 
That's what he wants to do, to present everyone fully mature in Christ. To the Ephesians, he wrote, Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So Paul is saying to the Galatians, don't go back to immaturity. Don't go backwards, go forwards. Don't go back to that old way of thinking that what matters are rules and regulations to keep to please God. You've been down that rules and regulations path when you followed paganism. These men from Jerusalem want you to go down that path again to follow Judaism. But that is not the way to maturity. Maturity does not lie down that way. Maturity comes from knowing that we are loved and accepted and living a life that proceeds from that, not living a life to be accepted. I'm reminded of the story Jesus told of the two sons in Luke chapter 15. We probably know this story really well, sometimes referred to as the parable of the prodigal sons. And it seems to me, the more and more I think about it, that they represent what the Galatians have come from and what they are in danger of slipping into. So you remember the first son, insensitively, immaturely, asks his father for his share of the inheritance. A bit like saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. And he must have caused his father huge pain by the manner of of that request. But his father accepts, and we read that the, the young man gets together all he has. He sets off for a distant country, and there we're told he squanders his wealth in wild living. He was living to please himself, just as Paul says the Galatians were, in Paul's words to Ephesians. The way Paul puts it, he was gratifying the cravings of his flesh and following its desires and thoughts. This son was living a hedonistic, pleasure-fueled lifestyle. But he was, he was a slave to it. He was a slave to this pleasure. And it brought him to rock bottom. And that's the point at which Jesus says he came to his senses. Now he realized he had no claim left on his father's generosity. But he was going to throw himself on his father's mercy. And this is the point the Galatians had come to as well. They too had come to their senses. They too had come to realize that God owed them nothing, but that they could throw themselves on his mercy in response to the gospel that Paul preached. In the story, the father rejoiced at the return of the prodigal son and a great party was thrown in celebration. In the story immediately following, Jesus declares that there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels over one sinner who repents. So one can only imagine how much rejoicing there must have been in the presence of God over loads of Galatians coming to faith as well. But now these Galatians were at risk of going back, not back to paganism, 
but to thinking that they had a claim on God's generosity if they followed certain rules and regulations. And they were at risk of becoming like the second son in the story. You remember him? The elderly brother who rather childishly, petulantly, immaturely refused to take part in the celebrations. Look, he says, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. I deserve a party, is in effect what he says. And I kind of think that at this point in Galatians, Paul is writing what the father might have said to the younger son, the first son, in a quiet moment when the party had died down. You know, you've come back. Don't go back to slavery now. You were a slave to your desires. Now don't become a slave to rules and regulations. You are loved for who you are, not for who, not for what you do. And don't go back to being strangers. You know, we're close again. We're family. Don't put up a barrier between us. And don't go back to immaturity. Become the person God wants you to be. Grow up in God. We have no way of knowing what happened to those two sons afterwards, do we? That's not Jesus' intention. But I do wonder what, you know, if we were the prodigal son in that story, where we would have gone on from there. Would we have, you know, gone on living out of the gratitude of being welcomed back and freely forgiven? Would we have slipped back into our kind of old pleasure-seeking way of life? Would we have started to model ourselves on the way the other son lived and started following rules and regulations? We don't know. We can only speculate. It was only a story after all. But what is our response today? As Paul reminds us that we have been forgiven, we are accepted, we are like that prodigal son. And we now have a choice. We can continue in the spirit of the party and celebration out of gratitude. Or we can go a number of other ways. And Paul wants us not to go back, but to go forward.